Once we were dead, separated from God. But Scripture describes a great mystery that moves us from death to life. A union between the created and the divine. United with Christ, we have an inheritance. We are redeemed and we are restored from our brokenness. But how do we experience this great mystery? How do we get from life as we know it to union with the Son of God? And what does it mean to be found in Christ? Well, good morning again. If we haven't met, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here. And as you just saw, we are starting a new series today going through the book of Ephesians. So I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn there. We're going to be starting at the very beginning today. So it's a good day for you to be here. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to grab one of the blue Bibles nearby you. We'll be on page 567 of those. I want to take a brief minute just to mention, as Pastor Bruce announced this morning, we'll be having a, a get-together, a, a survey, a Q&A time at 9 o'clock on September 11th. So if you didn't know, we are part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. That's the denomination or association our church is affiliated with. If you didn't know that, surprise, welcome. Um, but my dad uh, serves as the director of theology for the denomination, and in 2019, the denomination voted to make a tweak to our statement of faith. It's one word. We changed the word premillennial return of our Christ to the glorious return of our Christ. If you don't know what that means, I'd like to invite you to come to a, a get-together. We'll have some Q&A time. I'm going to ask my dad to do a brief overview of this change, why it's significant, and the implications for us in ministry today. So we'll be meeting in the youth room for that September 11th at 9 a.m. If you have questions, as Bruce said, feel free to reach out to me. Now, on to Ephesians. If you didn't know, one of the things I love to do is I love to read. I've loved to for years. Um, in fact, when I was growing up, what I used to do is I would sneak books into my bed and then stay up late just trying to get through as many books as I possibly could. My favorite book series as I was growing up was uh, uh, Hardy Boys. If you haven't read it, it's a mystery book, similar to like Scooby-Doo, which happened to be my favorite TV show to watch. Read The Happy Hollisters. I slowly worked my way up to Sherlock Holmes books, The Father Brown by G.K. Chesterton, which was recently turned into a BBC series that is wonderful. But I think part of the reason that mysteries are always so enjoyable for people is they provide a clear explanation for events. And we as humans have this obsession with certainty. Think about being a kid. The most frustrating thing your parents ever told you was because I said so, right? So then you hear that as you're growing up, and so you swear to yourself and everyone who's within earshot that you're never gonna tell your kids that, and then you have kids. See, I think all of us want to know with certainty how things work. We invest in the stock market because we know how it's going to work. We go to our jobs because we, we know we're going to get paid, but what about things that we can't fully or completely understand? Did you know that we have studied and know more about the surface of the moon than what's at the bottom of the ocean? So we, we have found creatures that were thought to be extinct for millions of years as people were out fishing. Even the, the new, newly uh, so sent out James Webb Space Telescope. If you haven't looked it up yet, look it up and see some of the pictures of these far-off galaxies. But it's revealing things that scientists are being forced to now change their thoughts on how the known world even came into existence. See, we love certainty about things, but we worship a God that we can't fully understand. 
So since we've been taught to figure out how everything works, including unsolvable mysteries, like uh, if, if you haven't read Sherlock Holmes, there's one where the only thing that gave the person, the culprit, away was that the dog didn't bark. You can ask me later about that story. But because of that, we have, we have a tendency to approach God the exact same way. But what we're going to be looking at today in Ephesians 1 is, is plumbing the depths of God's mysterious plan from all eternity past. And then we'll walk out of here reminded that when we come to something we can't understand, our, our response to that for us should be to fall on our face and worship God. So if you have Ephesians 1, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired word. I invite you to be seated, and as you're seated, please pray with me. God, I thank you that you are beyond our feeble comprehension. I thank you that your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. And I thank you that for the little glimpses that we get to see, re- you revealing yourself to us through your word. God, may we submit ourselves to your word. May we conform ourselves daily into the image of your son. And I pray for the uh, courage and the strength and the regular reminder that we are now in you. God, may we be a, a better reflection of you as we walk out of our doors today. May we stand in awe of the wonderful God that you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul starts right out of the gate with a a basic introduction stating who wrote this letter. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, there has been some debate over the past two centuries about whether or not Paul actually wrote this. So just a, the, the basic summary of the debate is there are a couple, a uh, few unique words compared to some of the other letters that Paul has written and like 26%, so about a quarter of this whole book is repeated verbatim in Colossians. I don't find those arguments convic- convincing and neither should you because wouldn't it make sense for you to use similar language if you wrote two letters? Don't you think there would be some overlap between them? And at the same time, don't you also try to accommodate your message to the people that you're talking to? Not saying that you change the truth, but you do use different language based on the specific group that you are writing to. So it says Paul, and then he identifies himself an apostle. Now, just so you know, an apostle is limited to the first century. The definition in the New Testament of an apostle is someone who has visibly seen the risen Christ. So Paul is the last one to do that. 
the last possible person, because Jesus appeared to him on the road as he was going to Damascus to try to, try to convert uh, or, or to imprison other Christians. Now, the word we translate as apostle is literally just translated as a messenger. So in the New Testament, it's referring to someone who is spreading uh, the message from God of the gospel. Now, notice, who was he an apostle or what was he an apostle of? Christ Jesus. Now, starting right out of the gate, we're reminded that the whole Bible, from beginning to end, is God's revelation through Christ Jesus. So Paul, in this letter, is explaining the reality, what it looks like for Jesus Christ to be the focus of our entire lives. So keep that in the forefront of your minds, everything through Jesus, as we spend the next three months walking through this book. And then there's, there's this phrase at the end, the will of God. Paul didn't come up with this call. He didn't imagine this commission out of thin air from his own desire or from his own gifting. This comes straight from God. And this theme will also carry throughout the book. God's will from eternity past has been to unite a people to himself for his glory. So God's sovereignty is going to come up throughout the book. Sovereignty is just a word that refers to his power and his authority over everything in creation. So this is where Paul is beginning this letter and then sets the stage for the implication of that through the rest of the letter. So this is who wrote it, Paul the Apostle. He wrote it to the saints who are in Ephesus. You can literally translate that word, the saints, to holy ones. Now oftentimes when we read something like this, saints, throughout the Bible, we are thinking of those who are sainted by the Roman Catholic Church. Someone did a, a brief study of it, and in order to get sainted, there's all these different processes and procedures that you have to go through. It costs something like three quarters of a million dollars to get to the level of being sainted. So if you have an extra three quarters of a million dollars around, you too can be a saint. But throughout the New Testament, when, when New Testament writers are using this phrase, it's referring to anyone who has put their faith in Christ. So that's where Paul goes on and says, who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now it says in Ephesus, so Ephesus uh, at the time was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. Ephesus was, if you look on here, you can kind of see it, sitting right in what is modern day Turkey. It was uh, the, the major throughput, there were four primary roads that came through here and it was a port city which meant if he, Ephesus was incredibly wealthy and a center of commerce and influence to the rest of the world. But a couple things you need to know about it. First is there was a huge temple at their center that was, was actually labeled one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple dedicated to the god Artemis, also known as Diana. Now, if you've seen pictures of, of the Parthenon in, in Greece, uh, the one that was dedicated to Artemis was four times bigger. So while Diana was the most prevalent, she wasn't the only god worship. There were a lot of uh, magic and cultic ideas that pervaded Ephesus, which is honestly very similar to a lot of major cities today. Think of a place like New York City or Hong Kong. So Ephesus was, was also known as the mother of Asia. So Ephesus served as the entry point to the entire rest of the continent in there. And most scholars believe that this letter was meant to be a circular letter. So since Ephesus was the entry point, word would travel there to the rest of the other churches in Asia, which is where in Acts you can read the account of where the word from Paul spread to all of Asia. Now the last thing that Paul says in here is his typical Pauline greeting, grace and peace. Grace is the Greek word that people would use in a common vernacular, and peace is the Jewish word. So Paul knows the audience that he's writing to. He's greeting them with a Greek word and with a Jewish word. And then he goes on and, and leads into his primary argument and point in this passage. So beginning in verse 3 all the way through 14, in our English Bibles, it has a number of like periods and commas and those kinds of things. In the original Greek manuscript, this was one run-on sentence. 
In fact, it's the longest run-on sentence that has ever been found in any ancient Greek manuscripts, which means all of these verses in here are connected together. Because for Paul, there is no distinction between how all three persons of the Godhead are involved in our salvation. So Paul begins using a Jewish greeting, blessed be. This is a Jewish custom called barakah, which is the Hebrew word for blessed be. So if you notice this morning, uh, Pastor Bruce read to us from Psalm 103, which goes through a list of things that we should bless God for. In the first century, it was customary for the Jews to have, they had 18 different blessed bees that they would recite throughout the day. So blessed be God, Father, for what he has done in our lives, those kinds of things. But notice the repetition here that that Paul begins this with. So blessed be God the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul is just going over and over at the beginning all these blessings that God has given to us. Even the worship and praise of God is meant to originate with him. See, we can't bless God unless he first blesses us, which has happened to us now because of and through Jesus. But notice that it lands here with with spiritual blessings, but how many spiritual blessings? Every single one. I think at times we're tempted to view God and his blessings like Scrooge from a Christmas story, where you're counting every penny and ensuring no one gets too much. Instead, the picture we're seeing here is a God who's throwing out blessings like it's running out of style. I couldn't help but think of this gif. It's like Oprah running around, you get a blessing, you get a blessing, you get a blessing, blessings for everyone. There is nothing held back, nothing kept in reserves. God is all in on his blessings. But where are these blessings? Because I look at my life and I don't always feel like it's overflowing with blessings. I still see sickness. I still see people dying. I still see wars taking place in the world around us. These blessings are in the heavenly places. The first century readers, unlike us, would have understood that there's a lot more to the world than we can see with our two eyes. There's a much greater and bigger reality that is taking place around us every day that we are often oblivious to. Uh, Think of it like radio waves. Everywhere we walk, there are radio waves that are passing through us that are going through buildings, but we can't hear them. But if we were to get a radio and turn it on and then tune it to a specific frequency, we would be able to listen to music, to talk radio, etc. Now, maybe that's too dated of a reference. They don't have a cell phone because it works the same way. There's cell phone signals that are being sent all across, at this point, the world. And unless you have the right stuff in order to access it, you're not going to be able to know what's even around you. So how do we tune to the right station if you're using the radio or make sure our cell phone is connected to the right network? Spiritually, it begins by us being in Christ. This theme, this idea of being in Christ is the connective tissue throughout this entire section. In fact, in these 14 verses, Paul repeats this idea in him or in Christ 11 times in 14 verses. One scholar said, the key for understanding this letter is recognizing that all believers have a new identity in Christ. So when did this being in Christ begin? It says, when God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So from eternity past, God had a perfect plan that included the salvation of his people. But notice as well that there is a point to his choosing, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Do not get that order reversed. God didn't choose us because we are holy and blameless or because of anything that we have done that merited his favor. Instead, we were chosen only because of his grace. 
then because of the overflow of that grace, we can now be holy and blameless before him. And this isn't a a new reality. This has been God's plan literally forever. That's why we see even little pictures and glimpses of this in the Old Testament. Abraham, the father of the entire Jewish nation, nation, wasn't chosen because he was richer or smarter or better. The nation of Israel wasn't chosen because of anything they did. In fact, God said they were the smallest and the weakest, that there was nothing attractive about them. It is only because of God's love and his mercy that anyone is chosen. Now, with that background, we see another a, a next word that has caused all sorts of discussion over the past two millennia. Predestination. I've even been told from some people just having conversations about theological issues that predestination is unbiblical. I'm not sure which Bible they were reading, but it wasn't this one. See, the reality is predestination is a wonderfully biblical and comforting doctrine. But before you jump to any conclusions on that word, let's look at what the Bible actually says about it. So first, in context here, look at the last two words of verse 4. Circle them, highlight them, do something in your Bible to remind yourself of this. In love. In love. Predestination and this idea of predestination isn't, as I've heard some people describe, God playing a cosmic game of duck, duck, gray duck. It's just for you Minnesotans where people are randomly condemned to hell for eternity. Instead, we need to realize that since God is love, we see that in 1 John 4, 8, everything he does is an act of love. So anytime we we approach God on some of these ideas, we need to tremble with fear because we need to admit and realize and understand that we will never fully comprehend him. And if we could fully understand everything that God is and does, then he would not be a God worth worshiping. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, has a really helpful quote anytime we try to engage the the study or or understanding of, of theology. He says, in Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him, or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. What Tozer is saying here is if we get God wrong, we will be conforming our lives to the wrong standard and we will be aiming in completely the wrong direction. Now, additionally, because we're not God, we have what what, uh, one of my professors in seminary called a mystery card to play. Because at some point, you're going to reach the end of what the Bible reveals to us about God. Now, I would caution you, we have the mystery card, but we are not to play it too soon. We are commanded to wrestle with everything God has said and revealed, and then after you've wrestled through everything God has revealed to us through Scripture, fall on your face and worship Him. Because as we see in Isaiah, His ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. So the word predestination is literally translated to foreordain or predestined. Like, there's not a huge semantic range of options that you can use to interpret this. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines it as God's predetermination of persons to a specific end an aspect of God's rule over all that he created and sustained. Now, this word is only used six times in the Old Testament. 
So we're going to look at every one of those uses to see what it is that Paul is referring to when he brings up this word predestination. First one is in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. This is right as the early church is getting started, and this is a prayer from the early believers asking for boldness to continue preaching. It begins referring to God as our sovereign Lord. Remember, sovereign is his authority and control over everything that exists. And then it goes on to quote Psalm 2 and then leads to these two verses. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This passage tells us that even worldly events, things that are taking place around us, happen according to God's predetermination or predestination. The second one is in Romans chapter eight, well, the next two. Uh, This is is what is referred to as the golden chain of salvation, which you'll see as I walk through it here. So verses 28 through 30, it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's referred to as the golden chain because there's all these connective things that happen in salvation. So it says he foreknew, then he predestined, then he called, then he justified, and then finally he glorified. So in salvation, we are predestined individually, but notice there is even in this text a purpose to this salvation to be conformed to the image of his son. Another way of summarizing that, you could say it's being in Christ. See, predestination is just one part of this chain that culminates in glorification. So this passage is telling us that salvation comes about because of God's predetermination. The last one before Ephesians is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul here is talking about Christ being the power and wisdom of God, which according to worldly standards is foolish. So here he says, verses uh, six through eight, yet among the truer we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed, it's the same word, you could say predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So here we see that salvation through the cross was God's plan before any dot of history was written. And again, the only other passage this word is used is in Ephesians 1, where it occurs twice. So what we see if we look through all of Scripture and the use of this word is two things, two realities. The first is God is completely sovereign, which means he is in control of everything that happens. Second thing we see is humans are completely responsible for their actions. How does that work in God's economy? This is where we can now say it's a mystery. As we're doing theology, we must be careful to only go as far as the Bible explicitly speaks and no further. Because there's some things that we will not understand. So I printed this off to remind us, in any of these theological discussions, you have a card to play. Some things are mysterious that we will not ever fully comprehend. I can't wait to get to heaven and ask how some of these things work in God's economy. But until that day, We dig in, we study, we try to apply our our minds and everything that we have to it, but then then we realize that we are not God and he is, so we throw up the mystery card. Now, there's one passage in particular that I think most carefully and, and as explicitly as you can find mentions this. It's Acts 13, 48. It says, the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed, you could put predestined in there, it's not the predestined word, but it's the same idea, to eternal life, believed. 
Same sentence, same words, all this. You have were appointed and believed. So somehow, in some way, humans are responsible for their belief. And somehow, in some way, God is sovereignly orchestrating all things. Think of the tension that you see at the end of Joseph's life in Genesis chapter 50, where uh, Joseph has this horrendous life. He ends up being the, the second person in charge of all of Egypt, finally meets his brothers again, and they're trying to apologize for it. And Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So all of this, as we look through everything that we see in Scripture, when we read predestined in our Bibles, it's meant to comfort us. So often I think the word predestination is used to divide, to split. It's like a sledgehammer. Like you come in and use it to, to throw down anyone else's arguments, but what it's meant to be for us who are in Christ is it's meant to be a pillow. Since God is in control, we can actually sleep at night. We don't have to worry, we don't have to fret about whether or not we're predestined. We go to sleep and trust that God, who is good, who is love, is bringing everything together for our good and for his glory. Charles Spurgeon, the, the preacher, was asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and, and human's responsibility? And he replied, I never reconcile two friends. Another pastor was asked about this so-called problem, and his reply was, that's not my problem, that's God's problem. And for God, it's not a problem. Now, if we go back to Ephesians, uh, all the way back here, we remember that, that there's a point to this predestination. It's leading somewhere. Here in this text, it says we are predestined for Adoption as sons. Adoption is a beautiful reality throughout the Bible. Because of adoption, it means we have all the rights and privileges of being in God's family. Maybe you have, have friends who have adopted. They see a cute little baby who needs a home and bring them in. And that's often how we think about adoption throughout the Bible. Spiritual adoption, however, is not quite like that. Because God actually adopts us and brings us into his family when the Bible calls us or describes us as enemies who are opposed to him. Like there's nothing that is cute or lovely about us. We are literally with all that we have at war with him. Yet in spite of that reality, God still chooses us. Now, one note because of, of our different context here, it says adoption as sons. Women, you are not left out of this. But we need to understand the context that this verse was written in. In the first century, women were not included in a family's inheritance. Now, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not putting a moral statement on it. I'm just sharing what the reality was. So throughout the New Testament, you will often see cases or instances where it says something like connecting adoption to sons, which at the time would have been completely revolutionary because it included both men and women. So if you look at the first century context, in God's family, both men and women are considered sons or worthy of receiving the family inheritance. And all this is done, another phrase that comes up a lot is, in his will. And then leads to, verse 6, more praise, worship, glory. You know, certainly more that could be said about these verses, but uh, we've got a lot more to cover. So in the next section, Paul talks about how we are now redeemed by the Son. This section begins, as I mentioned earlier, in Him. What this leads to in this time is redemption, which comes about through His blood. We le it leads to forgiveness of sins, and it all comes about because of the riches of His grace. Now, this redemption is meant to uh, remind the readers of the redemption that God has done for his people historically. So just as God in the past redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, today God has redeemed his people from slavery to sin. But the redemption only comes about if we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, then his blood has covered us and has paid the penalty for our sin. Now, this idea is known as grace, which in verse 8 says has been lavished 
upon us. Once again, we see the reality. God is not stingy. We see this in in John's gospel. John chapter 1, it says, Through God we have received grace upon grace. So God starts with grace and he ends with grace. And everything that we have, everything that we are, is a gift of God's grace to us. And this grace that has been extended is now making known to us the mystery of his will. See, uh, as I mentioned earlier, magic and the occult were a big part of the Ephesian culture. So they spent a lot of time and energy trying to, to understand the mysteries of the gods, try to figure out how to appease them, how to get them to do what you wanted and, and get the things that you needed from them when you needed it. Like if you were running out of rain, if you didn't have any rain for a while, if it was a really dry season, you had to uh, offer up certain sacrifices or things to try to appease whatever god was, was overseeing the fields. And if you didn't do it correctly in the right way, in the right words, with all the right things, then, then you were going to lose your crops and, and die. Uh, if you think about it, it'd be a really difficult place to, way to live, wouldn't it? Like you never know if you're in the right place. You never know if you're doing the right thing. Yet when you're in Christ, you're now a part of that mystery, which is no longer a mystery. See, for us today, God's mysterious plan has already taken place. That's part of the joy that we have of living on this side of the cross. We can look back in history and see how it is that God accomplished his eternal plan by sending his one and only son to bear the penalty for the sins of the world. And in this case, it says it's to unite all things to him. That is, to have Jesus be the ultimate king over any other supposed ruler or king that people were tempted to worship. Now, notice that there is nothing left out of his rule. So unite all things in him, that is, Jesus Christ being the head, things in heaven and things on earth. This is just another reminder that that what we can taste, what we can see, what we can smell isn't all there is. Like you even uh, hear this phrase regularly thrown around, well, science says. Science is a theory that is constantly changing. Like when people say science is settled, push them and ask them, what science are you talking about? Because there's all sorts of different sciences. Some are more settled than others. Yet again, we, we act as if we have all the answers to everything. And we hate coming up to the point where, where things are mysterious and we can't understand them. But there are all sorts of things that we don't fully comprehend. Scientists still haven't quite figured out how gravity exactly works. Did you know that? They know that it does work. They know how to calculate what it does and the impacts that it has on the world, but they don't know how gravity actually keeps us together, where it comes from, how it originates, any of those kinds of things. We see this in Christ. Again, verse 11 here repeats the theme, in him. Now, this time, what is it talking about? In him we have obtained in inheritance. All of us, we are all now sons and daughters because we're in Christ. No one is left out of this blessing. Again, this is lavished grace. This is grace upon grace where God has now given us everything he has created. And again, we have that word, uh, obtained in inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, in this case, predestination here is serving to remind us that God is in control, so we don't need to be afraid. So where, where we come up to the point where we see something in God or around us that is a mystery, to God, you need to remember that nothing is a mystery. Nothing at all. He created it all. He knows how everything works. All we have to do is, is worship, honor, and praise him in response to the mysteries that we see. And finally, at the end, we see the aim of Jesus' redemption. So that we might be to the praise of his glory. Again, Paul gets to this point where mystery, and he says, what's the proper response to seeing something mysterious in God? To praise him. 
See, we are saved to praise and bring honor and glory to God. Everything in salvation is meant to lead us to respond to God with praise or with blessing that we saw at the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see this throughout the entire book of Psalms, including the one we read for the call to worship today. Bless the Lord. Now, I titled this message Trinitarian Worship. We saw at the beginning that we should bless God the Father because he chose us before anything was created. He accomplished this choosing through the Son's redemption, and we know this is guaranteed to happen because of the last two verses, because we have been sealed by the Spirit. Now, as you're starting to see this theme I mentioned earlier, it starts there again. In Him. Then he goes on and says, You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. At that point, you were sealed. The exact moment when you respond to the truth of the gospel message and believe in him, you are given the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead who is living, dwelling within you. So because God now lives within us, we, all of us, can be described as being in Christ. In fact, Jesus even said during his earthly ministry that it was better for him to leave so that we could have the Spirit in us. Now, in in salvation, what the Holy Spirit does is serves as as a a promise or a seal or a guarantee. So that's where uh, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the day that we acquire possession of it. So during the the New Testament, a seal was uh, used as as a mark of ownership. So if you've ever seen cattle being used, like they will often be branded with a specific mark that identifies this this, uh, cow as belonging to a specific farmer. Uh, so, and, and, and what this meant to do is like if someone tried to steal uh, something that was yours, you could easily go and say, like, clearly you covered up my, my mark on my cow. That is obviously my cow. It was an easy way to identify the differences between them. The Holy Spirit does the exact same thing in our lives as believers. So for anyone who is in Christ, view yourself, think of yourself as branded by God. That's your identifying marker, which, which might even change some of the way you read the book of Revelation, Right? It talks about these identification markers that you as, as a Christian will have. Here we see what that identification marker is. We have the Holy Spirit. And this, this seal, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, actually serves as the starting point. Just a little bit like, like think of the appetizer in a meal. Just a little taste of everything else that will be fully realized when Jesus finally comes back. See, we haven't completely acquired everything God has promised. We'll see little glimpses of it, but it's not quite there yet. John Stott, in his commentary on this, compares this idea to a down payment on a house. So it initially serves as the guarantee that you're invested in it, like you put the down payment in saying, I am all in. You scrimp and save for years to finally get that down payment. But it also serves as as both the guarantee and the first payment of the loan. Similarly, the Holy Spirit serves as a down payment in our lives of our future inheritance that we have in Christ. Now notice how he ends. He ends this section the exact same way he's ended all the other previous sections. To the praise of his glory. All of life is meant to be lived in the worship of God. So plumbing the depths of God's eternal plan, these mysteries that God has now revealed in and through us, is completely worthless unless it leads to greater appreciation and worship of God who predetermined from eternity past to redeem us and seal us by his Holy Spirit. However, that doesn't leave us off the hook for the choices that we make. Every single person in the world has a choice to make. When will you bow the knee to Christ as the Savior and King of the universe? Will it be before you die? 
which means you are then sealed by the Spirit and adopted into God's family, or will it be after you die when it will be too late and you'll be separated from God forever? See, in this text, when we are chosen, when we are in Christ, here's all the things that we get. We are proved faithful. We get every spiritual blessing. We are chosen in him. We're adopted. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. We are united to him. We have an inheritance, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But each one of us must make the decision about whether or not you will be a part of this list. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. Realize, acknowledge that God's mysterious plan has been revealed and you can be a part of it. You don't have to know the mystery. You have to trust in the God to whom nothing is a mystery. And when you do that, you can have every spiritual blessing that God has given us in the heavenlies. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this wonderful and comforting truth that you have revealed to us in and through your word. May we not use some of these doctrines or these ideas as sledgehammers to try to beat other people into submission, but may we realize that they are meant to serve us as a reminder that we are not God and you are. God, I thank you that because of the the sealing of your Holy Spirit, we can now be holy and blameless before you. May we be quick in casting off every weight and sin which clings so closely. And as we saw last week, let us fix our eyes on Jesus Christ instead of ourselves, instead of the things of this world. God, when we come across areas of mystery, things that we don't understand, things that are too far above and beyond our minds, may we fall on our faces in worship of you. May we be reminded that you are a great God who has has determined from eternity past to redeem a people to yourself. God, I thank you for salvation. I praise you for the ways that that your your son's sacrifice, that your son's blood has bought redemption in our lives and now gives us the real opportunity to respond in faith. God, I pray as we continue studying Ephesians together that we would be reminded of all the, the benefits that we have, the blessings that come when we respond in faith to you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.